Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. We have your Bibles this morning. Go with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter number 10 this morning, the book of Mark and chapter 10. Turn to Mark chapter 10 in your Bible this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one perhaps in the back of the seat in front of you, maybe in the back of the seat behind you. You'll find a copy of God's Word and we would invite you to pick up that copy and follow along with us. Mark chapter 10 this morning. We are picking up our study, uh, walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Mark and we come this morning to Mark chapter number 10 and if you found your place and if you're willing and able stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word Mark chapter 10 verse 1 down to verse number 12 Mark chapter 10 verse 1 to verse 12 he arose he there is Jesus so Jesus arose from thence and he cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. The people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Now notice, they're asking him that question because verse 2 says they are tempting him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him. And he answered and he said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Well, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement to put her away. And Jesus said, And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain, which is two, so they too shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And in the house, his disciples asked him again of the, of the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Our Heavenly Father, use your word in our lives today. We know many of the things that were read from this passage stand in contradiction of what much of our world thinks. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us courage, Father, not only to think what you think about marriage, Father, but act in a way that is appropriate with what you have written down. Give us courage in this way. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Someone once said that marriage is like flies on a screen door. 
The flies that are in want to be out. And the flies that are out want to be in. Now, I don't know if you are in or out on the screen door. But what I, but what I do hope for your marriage is that if you are in a marriage, you will stay in that marriage. And we come to verses like Mark chapter 10, especially in our cultural moment, and we realize that there are many in our world who absolutely reject the truths that were just read from Mark chapter 10. There are many who not only reject them, but there are many who are trying to re-engineer them. They, they, they believe that they have a better plan for what marriage should be, for how marriage should go. And as a result, they are running full speed away from God's good plan for marriage. In research for this sermon, I, I came across a statistic that reported that there's one divorce every 36 seconds in our country. One divorce every 36 seconds. The article went on to say that the average marriage ends in divorce and the average marriage only lasts eight years. Your goldfish lasts longer than most marriages. And hear me on this, and this is important to point out. This is not new. We think it's new, but it is not. That people have been turning their back on God's design for centuries. Even when Jesus was alive, people knew God's plan and they rejected it. But this is something that is new for us. What is new is that there are moral, social, psychological, and spiritual implications that come as a result of rejecting God's plan. That when we as a culture, when you as an individual, when we as a people, when we turn our back on God's creative purposes for marriage, there are serious implications that follow. In fact, just read through the nightly news. Just search through the news from this weekend. And what you must realize and what we would all have to acknowledge is that there is a lot of chaos in our culture. But where does this chaos come from? And there are lots of people who are happy to point out that the chaos comes from economical disadvantages. That the chaos is a result of living on the right side of the tracks. But I would argue from the scriptures that the chaos we see in our culture today is in large part directly tied to an unwillingness from men and women to do what God has called us to do. An unwillingness to live the way that God has called us to live, to value the things that God has called us to value. And one of the values that God has given us is the institution of marriage. 
and the protection of the home. What you're seeing in this passage is you are seeing the sanctity of marriage. That is what Jesus is laying down. He is laying down the importance of marriage as defined and designed by God. Not as defined and designed by you and me. So we're going to consider it in three ways. Notice first, notice an issue in marriage. Notice the, the Pharisees come to Jesus. The Bible says in verse 1 that there was all kinds of people who were gathering to Jesus in that day. And this is one of the great things about the gospel. The great things about the gospel is to see all the different ways in which people are coming to Christ. And when they come to Christ, Christ teaches with clarity. Christ is very straightforward. Christ teaches in a way that is understandable. And so Jesus has gotten on a boat. He has gone across the Jordan. And when he arrived on the other side, here come all these people again. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. And notice the Bible says in verse 1 that he taught them again. Look at the end of the verse. He taught them again. You remember what Jesus has already taught them. And Jesus came in Mark chapter 1 and he was teaching and preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. So what should they do? They should repent and they should believe the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus came and said, I am here. And what you need to do is turn from your sin. That's what repentance is. You need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from going your own way. You need to turn from your own idea. And you need to believe what God has said and revealed to us in his word. Jesus is asking the people in that day to have a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. And what Jesus is calling you and me, the same thing, is no different for us today. A change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. But you'll notice, as Jesus is teaching them, you need to go the way of God in this matter. You need to think about your marriage the way that God thinks about marriage. And as he is teaching them this, Verse 2 says, the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Notice, tempting him. In other words, they weren't simply doing an investigation. They don't really want to know the answer. They're coming to Jesus and they're trying to, they're trying to catch him off guard. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to get him to take one section of the crowd or the other and cause them to be turned against Jesus. What you should know about this text is this is a record of religious people using the word of God to undermine the work of the Son of God. That's what's happening. This is a record of religious people using the word of God to try to undermine the work of the Son of God. Not a lot has changed, has it? You know, you could take almost any verse in the Bible, and if you pull it out of context, it could probably support any kind of foolishness that you were trying to justify in doing. How do you know if someone is doing that? 
How do you know if someone is using a verse of the Bible to simply justify why they are making this decision? How do you know if someone is using the Bible in a way to simply justify their own sinful choices? Well, one way you can know this is you're going to ask, why is the Bible being referred to at all? Are they using that verse to lead you to Jesus, to exalt Jesus' work? To show the way in which God's plan impacts our lives today? Or are they using that verse to bring on you or to bring on me something that is clearly not taught in its pages? Listen, friend, you, you cannot be so naive as to think that just because someone makes a reference to the Bible, that they are being true to the Bible. Simply because someone knows the scripture does not mean that they are true to the God of the scriptures. You remember when Jesus was tempted? Do you remember what the devil did to Jesus when he was being tempted? The devil quoted to Jesus the scripture. And so this is happening here. Here come these Pharisees and they're, they're quoting back to Jesus the law as it was laid down by Moses. So they're saying, is it lawful that this should happen? Notice verse 3. And Jesus answers them. He says to them, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement to put her away. And Jesus answered and he said to them, for the hardness of your heart, he wrote this he wrote you this precept. So here's the background to this question that in Jesus' day, there were largely two groups of people. There was a group of people who thought that divorce was permitted for any and for every reason. My wife burnt the toast, so I get to divorce her. And there were other people who thought divorce was permitted for no reason at all. That even if there was an adulterous relationship, or even if there was abuse or sin, or even if there was an unbeliever in the relationship, then you were obligated to stay in that relationship forever. And of course, Jesus knows this. And Jesus knows that in the crowd that day are more than likely these two groups of people. So what Jesus appeals to is he appeals to the law. He says, well, what did Moses tell you you could do? He says, Moses suffered, they answer, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement in order to put her away. In other words, there was something issued by Moses that if this man or this woman filled out the correct piece of paper, proved it in a court of law that he then could divorce his wife or she could divorce her husband. But you need to know this. What Jesus is pointing out is he is pointing out that the only reason this piece of paper existed to begin with is because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, because of sin, this piece of paper has now entered into the equation of marriage. Because they were hard in their hearts and rejected God's purpose, God's plan, God's way. 
because they were unprepared and unwilling to accept the nature of love within the framework of a covenant marriage, then Moses had issued these certificates. But I want you to know this. These certificates were issued by Moses for ways of preventing divorce, not in order to give permission for divorce. Moses says, no, 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 you can't just go around and violate the covenant of marriage. You can't just divorce your wife because she burns the toast. And you can't divorce your husband because he leaves his stinky socks in the middle of the floor. No, that is not allowed. And so Moses issues a certificate to say, no, 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 you, you can't just divorce for any reason at all. But there's a group of people who are going, well, as long as I have the right form filled out, and as long as I've checked all the boxes, and as long as I've signed all their certificates, well, then I am free to divorce. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The reason you think that is because you have a hard heart. Now, Mark chapter 10 sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? That's very relevant in our culture today. You notice what Jesus does in the text. Jesus doesn't get buried into the minutia of the discussion. He doesn't talk about the validity or the invalidity of the nature of these certificates. They say, are, are we allowed to divorce our husbands or wives? And Jesus goes right back to the very first principle. So notice the issue in marriage that there was at point, at one point or another in marriage some kind of problem that was causing people to want to run away from the marriage. Now watch. You don't have to be married long at all to know that there are problems in marriage. There's no perfect marriage. Well, I'm going to meet the man of my dreams... He's going to be hunky and not chunky. He's going to have a job. He's going to be rich. He's going to buy me diamonds and chocolate. And I'm going to live happily ever after. That only exists in fairy tales, friend. Because not only is he not all that hunky, he is more chunky than hunky. Problems exist in marriage. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult. You know why marriage is difficult? Because you're a sinner. And all the ladies said, amen. <laughs> he is a sinner. All men are liars. That's what the Bible says. <laughs> no, no, no. Because you're a sinner and he's a sinner. And two sinners in one relationship doesn't equal perfection. Two sinners in one relationship equals twice the sin. Twice the sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that even within himself there's this war that happens. That he found himself doing things that he knew he shouldn't do. And he found himself not doing things that he knew he should have done. And so he says, there's within my members a war daily. 
So what marriage is, is not only are you in a war within yourself, spiritually speaking, knowing what you should do and not doing it, knowing what you ought not to do and doing it. Not only is that happening, but now you're inviting someone else into this relationship. Someone else who has their own struggles, someone else who has their own sin, someone else who has their own problems. And the two of you are coming together in one relationship and we think, well, if I just find the right person, then there'll never be any issues and there'll never be any problems. No. Ask any person who's been married longer than five minutes. No, there are issues, there are problems, there are struggles in marriage. Marriage is difficult, marriage is hard, and that is why you must die to self. That is why you must make Christ the center of your home. That's why you should get to church. Because you need more in your marriage than just your awesomeness. Because you just aren't that awesome, just to be honest with you. There's an issue in marriage. Marriage is difficult. Of course it's difficult. And any relationship that you think is not difficult means you don't have a proper self-awareness of the, of the reality of sin. You don't have a proper awareness that there is an enemy in this world who is out to destroy you, who is out to wreck you, who is out to take everything from you. He doesn't want God glorified in your life. He doesn't want God glorified in your marriage. He doesn't want God glorified in your children. He doesn't want God glorified in your parenting. He wants your children growing up resentful to church, resentful to the things of God, resentful to the idea that their dad left them or their mom abandoned them. He wants them growing up resentful and hateful and bitter and their hearts full of anger. And there's no better way to do that than to divide and fracture the home that God has given. It's an issue in marriage. So you've got problems in your marriage. Welcome to the club. Do you think I'm lying? Watch. How many of you are married? Be honest. Jesus is watching. How many of you, you had a fight within the last 14 days? Let me see. Slip your hand up. Come on. Some of you husbands didn't wait. Raise your hand. Wives, just go ahead. Just give him that. Remind him about it right now, because I know you know. Of course. So what do we do? What do we do when we have a problem? Well, first, you confess your sin to God. Second, you ask for forgiveness from the person you have a problem with. You confess your sin to God. Lord, against thee and thee only, Psalms 51. Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness in thy sight. I'm sorry, Lord, I've, I've, I've sinned against you and I need you to forgive me. And here's the promise, 1 John, that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And once we have a right relationship with God and we're listening to the spirit of God in our hearts, then we can go to our husbands or our wives or our children, whoever it is, and we can say, look, I, I was wrong. I messed up. I need you to forgive me. And you know what's necessary in order for the marriage to work? It's for you then to grant forgiveness to the person asking it. Well, I'm just not ready to be uh, not mad yet. Sometimes I tell Amanda, I just want to be mad for a little while longer. No, you need to, don't be mad. Go get it right. I just want to be angry. Just, just one more day. Just let me be angry one more day. 
And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that when we hold on to our anger like that, that angerness grows up a root of bitterness in our heart and it chokes out all the joy and it chokes out all the life and it chokes out all the work that the Spirit is doing in our lives because we've allowed the sun to go down upon our wrath, Ephesians. We chose to be angry and we became bitter and we lost all joy, all hope, all work of God's spirit in our lives. Instead of following God's purpose and plan and realizing that there is no perfect husband and all the ladies said, amen. amen. And realizing there are no perfect wives and there are no perfect children and there are no perfect parents. All the men got all noisy on that point, feeling all big and bold all of a sudden. There's an issue in marriage. Of course there is. You're standing at the, you're standing at the start of 2022. Do you not think that this year, at some point or another, you're going to have some issue in your marriage? Of course you are. So, so what will you do about that? I will tell you what most people do. Where's that certificate of divorcement? I'm cashing that thing in. And why? And why do we think that? Here's why. Second. Because, because we have no real concept of the institution of marriage. Because, because we think that marriage is actually for me and my happiness. That's the way most people approach. Uh, that's the way most people approach Dating someone, that's the way most people approach any relationship with someone. I want to be in relationship with you as long as you make me happy. And the moment you don't make me happy, you're gone. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't deal into the minutia of the marriage. He just says, what? Let me, Jesus goes, let me just remind you what marriage is. Let me remind you of where it came from. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning should mark that phrase, from the beginning. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Amen. Just two, male or female. Amen. That's it, only two options, male, female. That's 77 options, I'm sorry, there's not, it's just male and female. And if you're a male, well then guess what you are? You are in verse 7, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother. You see, you, the, the Bible has to be canceled. We cannot have this kind of talk. Man leaves his father and his mother. That's what a male is. He's a man. And then the female is a woman. And in the text, she is the wife. So the man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife. And these two become one. There are no more two, but one flesh. Wherefore, what God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So Jesus is saying, marriage is not something that the state came up with. Marriage is not something the church came up with. Marriage was God's idea from the beginning. Pew Research put out a study that said 40% of people believe that marriage is obsolete. And 31% of married people think marriage is obsolete. You know, most of the times when people talk about marriage, they always talk about it in this negative sense. But here's what I want you to know. While, while marriage is certainly an endangered species... 
Marriage is not doomed because marriage belongs to God. There, there are plenty of people. I see them every week. You're sitting in this church right now. There are some people who have great examples of marriage. They're vibrant, they're flourishing, they're long-lasting, they're solid, they're biblical. But if you think that that happens by accident, then you're wrong. To have a vibrant, flourishing, solid, long-lasting relationship happens... Because there are two people who have first, not simply an awareness of themselves and their own sinfulness, but also have an awareness of the need of God's grace and the need of God's strength. If you are married, you, you have to wake up every day and remind yourself that marriage, your marriage in particular, was not your idea, it was God's. And if my marriage is God's idea, if my marriage is God's creation, then listen, my marriage doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him. Everything about it belongs to him. The structure, the plan, the purposes, even the struggles, it all originated in the mind of God. It's his. You got a couple notes here. Write this down. Marriage is created by God. This is how it was in the beginning. That's what Jesus says. Look at the text. Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made. Marriage was created by God. And marriage was created by God for male and female to come together in marriage. To come together in relationship. And marriage was given because Adam is a relational being. Adam is a relational being because Adam was made in the image of God. And so God saw Adam, a relational being, all alone on this earth. And God said, that is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. So I'm going to give him something to help him. And what he gives Adam to help him, to complete him, is the gift of marriage. I want you to know this. There's no record of Adam even knowing that he needed marriage. Adam isn't walking around the garden going, I'm so alone. I'm so alone. Oh, I'm just so lonely. If I just had somebody. There's no record of that. No, no, God knows what you need. God knows better than you on what you need. God, or marriage is created by God. Second, marriage is exclusive between one man and one woman for one lifetime. For this cause, a man leaves his father and his mother, and cleaves to his wife. Marriage involves a man and his wife. That is it. Not a man and his wives. And I, immediately, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go, well, pastor, there are people in the Bible that had multiple wives. Wait, wait, wait. You have to remember, the Bible is a record a historic, especially the Old Testament, is a historical record of the way it was. 
not what God intended it to be. So simply because men in the Old Testament had multiple wives, that does not mean that is God saying, I'm blessing this idea. No, in fact, read every occasion. It always goes bad. Duh. It always goes bad. It's not one event where it's working out good. And God isn't saying, oh, Abraham had multiple wives and I was really proud of the guy. No. He's simply recording the event as the way it was. You say, well, what was God's plan then? God's plan, as Jesus is pointing out from the very beginning, one man, one woman, one life. That's the plan. Marriage is exclusive Third, marriage establishes a brand new family. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and they become one. So you had a mom and a dad and they had children and they were all very happy together. They went on vacation together. They did everything together. And then one day, out of the blue, some bum shows up and he tries to run away with your little daughter. And guess what? They become a brand new family. Which means they're going to do their own things. They're going to have their own ideas. They're going to parent their kids in their own way. That's a part of it. And you've got to give them the space to do that. You are not married to him. She is. And he is not married to you, thank God. <laughs> you have to create, they are their own family. Do you understand? There's so much tension, so much frustration inside of family unit, units because we, we, we fail to realize that they become their own. A, a marriage establishes a new family. Let me give this last one. A marriage is permanent. And they shall become one. They are no longer two. They are one. So, so, so once I've entered into the relationship of marriage, listen, I cannot look at my life in an individualistic way again. The, the, the husband and the, and the wife are no longer two separate individuals who, who happen to be cohabitating. That's not the biblical view of marriage. That's the cultural view of marriage, but that is not the biblical view of marriage. The biblical view of marriage is not me, I. The biblical view of marriage is we, us. So what it means is if I'm in a marriage or if you're in a marriage, that, that you, your highest commitment in marriage cannot be to your own self to your own happiness. But this is the way that our world tells us. Shop around for someone who makes you happy. Shop around for someone who makes you feel ooey and gooey. Those are Greek words, actually. Shop around for someone who you think will make you happy, give you all they want, and stay in that relationship as long as they make you happy. 
But the moment they don't make you happy, walk out. Now, you cannot, you cannot view this relationship in that way. That's individualistic. That's viewing marriage as me and I. Instead of looking at marriage the way the Bible calls us to look at marriage, which is we and us. That in marriage, your thoughts are always bound together with the other person. That's the way you're to make decisions in marriage. That's the way you're, you're to approach your resources in marriage. It's a we and us perspective. Not a me and I perspective. If you're here this, this morning, I, I would ask you, do you live that way? Do you live not for your own happiness, but do you live for your wife's happiness? Do you live for your husband's happiness? Are your thoughts, are your desires, are your plans, are the way that you talk to each other, the way you make decisions, the way you think about the future, are they me and I? Or are they we and us? Let me just make one more point here on this, on this second one before we close. Let me just state with clarity the same way Jesus states with clarity. Verse 12, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. That whenever someone divorces his wife or whenever a wife divorces her husband without biblical grounds, and then they remarry, it is an act of adultery according to the Bible. Now Jesus gives clarity in this regard. But we must also remember that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So in Scripture there are exceptions to this. There's the Matthew 19 exception. There's the 1 Corinthians 7 exception. Of course, even here, there's the exception given by Moses. But the exception, listen, the exception is never the rule. In fact, I, I, would, I would argue anyone who's lived through a divorce would even know and argue for themselves, divorce is terrible. You never want to go through that. It's awful. No one goes through divorce and says, man, I really hope my kids go through that one day. No one says that. No, they go through divorce and go, man, I hope my kids never have to experience what I had to experience. But why did it happen? Why did it experience? Because sin entered the equation, that's why. Mark and his gospel doesn't include the exceptions. He isn't including the exceptions because it would, it would, have, it would have been widely understood to his audience in that day. Divorce on account of marital unfaithfulness was allowed. It was permissible. But this is the point I want to I highlight. Simply because something is permitted does not mean something is prescribed. Simply because something is allowed doesn't mean that that's the first strategy or approach that we ought to have. Our first concern ought to be with repentance, forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation. Is it permitted? Sure. Is it prescribed? No. And in fact, the best path is not what is permitted. The best path is what is prescribed. One man, one woman for one life. I will go one step farther in this. 
Because inevitably there will be people who are listening to this sermon who have all kinds of questions. They have all kinds of legitimate considerations. And it is absolutely impossible within the framework of a 45-minute sermon for me or frankly anyone to articulate all the, the variable factors that might be represented in marital breakdown or, or might be represented in the idea of remarriage. So, so let me just suffice it to say this way. We have spiritually minded men and women in this church who would love to help you go through this, walk through this, and think through this. There's a team of pastors and deacons and teachers who would love to sit down with you individually and go, let's search the scripture and see if we can come up with what God's plan for your situation is. And so I encourage you to do that. In fact, I invite you to do that. There's an issue in marriage. The issue in marriage is a result of not properly understanding the institution of marriage. Marriage is not given to you by God for your own happiness. Marriage is given to you by God for your sanctification. Marriage is given to you by God for your sanctification. Third and last. Notice the text. He says, verse 9, What therefore God hath joined together. So there's an issue in marriage. There's the institution of marriage. And then third, there's your own individual marriage. I think of it in terms of my relationship with Amanda. I, I would like to say that I was smart enough to know that there was a little girl being raised in Kentucky that would be worth marrying. But the reality is I had no idea of Amanda's existence. I, I had no idea of Amanda's existence until God worked in such a way that he brought our stories together. That's the way a David Delaney from Missouri can meet a Amanda Epperson from Kentucky sitting in an arcade while she's arm wrestling other girls. I was in eighth grade. And like any good 8th grader, I walk into the arcade and Amanda's sitting over there, also in 8th grade. And she's arm wrestling these girls in the school. And she's beating them. She's like, slam, next, slam. So being a good junior high annoying kid, I walked over and I said, you can beat girls, but you can't beat me. And Amanda, being meek and mild and quiet of nature says, sit down, let's go. <laughs> How in the world could I have ever known? You can't. 
I, there's no way I could have ever understood how God would work in all of that to bring us together. But what Jesus is making sure we know is that it was in fact God who was working in it. It was God who created it. It was God who gave the attraction and the interest. It was God who blessed the desire in the heart. It was God who controlled the circumstances. It was God who who worked through the influences that ended up bringing Amanda and I together. This is what Paul says in Acts 17. It's God who determines the place in which we live. It's God who determines the length of our days. It's all God. Now that is important to recognize because it is important to recognize that God knew exactly what he was doing. Not just when he brought Amanda and I together, but God knew what he was doing when he brought you and your spouse together. God knew the rather difficult and wild mix that Amanda and myself would be. God knew it. God wasn't shocked by it. God didn't think for a second, oh no, David is falling in love with Amanda. What am I going to do? No, God knew these circumstances, all of them. He knew the circumstances that would press in on us. He heard the weaknesses in our hearts, in both of us. And he knew all the places that we needed to grow. And so he gave the gift of marriage. You see, friend, you must recognize that even your own individual marriage is bigger than you. It's bigger than your own happiness. It's bigger than your own plan. It's bigger than your own idea. And that if you don't see marriage as connected to that plan, you will never live in marriage in the way that God intended for you to live in it. Life is not all about you. It is not all about your comfort. It is not all about your definition of happiness. No, no, no. Marriage is something so much bigger than that. And you must see that. You must know that. So why does God do that? Why does God give us such a demanding gift like marriage? God gives it to us for our own sanctification. Wouldn't it have been easier if you had to get all the way sanctified first before you could get married? Who hasn't dreamed about being married to a fully sanctified person? Or self-parenting children. No, no, no. See, marriage is not an end in itself. Marriage is a means to an end. And what is the end? The end is your sanctification. 
I will show you this one passage, then we'll go. I'm going to show you. Look at Ephesians. Ephesians is probably in the New Testament the largest section of teaching on marriage. I want you to show you something that the Apostle Paul does in this passage. Look at Ephesians in chapter 5. The Bible says in verse 21, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. That's still in the Bible, just in case you are wondering. For the husband is the head of the wife. That is also still in the Bible, just in case you are wondering. Even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be unto their own husbands in everything. That is also still in the Bible. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Look here. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word and that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. You hear what he says? This is the prayer for every marriage. It at least ought to be. I pray every day that I will love Amanda and lead her in a way that when the time comes, and I hope it's a million years from now, but that when the time comes that she stands before God and she gives an account of her actions, of her life, of her thoughts, of her choices, of her words, of her desires, that she gives a pure account. And I hope that in some way, when she stands in front of Jesus, she can say, God, thank you for giving me Dave. Because he created in me a love for you. He, he caused a love for you to flourish in me. He didn't take me away from you. He, he led me towards you. He didn't leave me with thoughts of bitterness and regret and contention. But forgiveness and rest, restoration and reconciliation. I hope that Amanda stands in front of Jesus one day and says, I am thankful that Dave was in my life. That's what he says we're supposed to love our wives like. Supposed to love them in a way that when they see him, they will be thankful for us. His marriage is not the end. What is the end? Your sanctification is the end. That you would be a little more like Jesus.